0: To create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: What is the place of archives in our society? In archival studies, an answer to this question often presents an idea of linear progressive temporality. A common trope goes we learn history to have a better future. That is why history and archives as a site of historical evidence is important. In her thoughtful, groundbreaking work, a feminist archival studies scholar, Michelle Caswell, challenges the white imaginary of linear progressive time embedded in our conceptual archives, pointing out how community archives from different ethnic communities across the U.S. present cyclical temporalities where oppressions repeat, Caswell emphasizes the importance of activating the archives for their liberatory potential in the present. Over a year has passed since the murder of George Floyd and the beginning of the global pandemic that has highlighted not only structural inequality, but also an ongoing material and symbolic annihilation of Black Americans. As Michelle Caswell argues in her book, imagining liberatory memory work is an urgent project. I am excited to have Professor Michelle Caswell here today at the New Books Network in Gender Studies to talk about her new book, Urgent Archives, Enacting Liberatory Memory Work, and how we can move towards liberatory activation of archives.
1: Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited for this conversation. I loved your book. So yeah, super excited. Thank um, you. Yeah. First, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write Origin Archives?
1: Yes. So it's been a very circuitous path. So initially, my undergraduate training was in religion, specifically Hinduism and South Asian traditions. And I wound up getting a master's degree focusing on world religions from Harvard Divinity School. And when I was done with that master's degree, I honestly didn't know what I was going to do professionally. I'm a first-generation college student. Neither of my parents graduated from high school. So I didn't really have good guidance or role models in terms of what my professional life would look like with a master's degree in religion. And I wound up working for nonprofit organizations. So first museums, then a refugee-led social service agency, and then a university in fundraising and marketing. And I liked, sometimes I liked the work that I was doing, but I wanted something more out of my career. And I had um, close friends who were librarians and they were the only friends I had that seemed happy with their jobs. So I decided that I would go back to school and get a master's of library and information studies to become a librarian. And I thought that I would become a South Asia subject specialist. So a bibliographer is someone who works at a, an academic university library um, who collects materials related to academic subjects. And so I thought I would be a South Asia bibliographer. So I wound up doing that for a little bit at the University of Chicago Library. But when I was in my Master's of Library and Information Studies program, I really realized how much work needed to be done in the field. So this was not even 15 years ago. And we were being taught really white supremacist, dominant Western ways of viewing records and archives and history. And I kept asking questions and I didn't find answers to those questions within um, the dominant white archival studies literature. And so at this point in time, I decided that I would go back and get a PhD. At the same time, I was working with my colleague, Samit Malik. To co-found a community-based archive called the South Asian American Digital Archive, which I'm sure we'll talk more about um, later. And so I've always kind of, since I've been in the field of library and information studies or, or archival studies as a subfield specifically, um, been pushing back on dominant narratives and seeing how those dominant white narratives and dominant white theories and dominant white practices within archival studies have really harmed minoritized communities. Um, And I'm talking specifically in the book about communities that are minoritized because of white supremacy and heteropatriarchy. Um, And trying to critique, not only critique those dominant practices, but also envision and enact new theories and practices that are liberatory rather than oppressive. Um, So it's been quite a journey for me. I've been working with the South Asian American Digital Archive since 2008, so 13 years now, um, and have been thinking about these issues all along. And so I've published a lot of articles about community-based archives, about South Asian American Digital Archive, about archival theory And this book is just another step, I think, on that journey of thinking through these concepts. And again, the the idea is both to critique the current state of practices and envision and enact new ways of doing um, memory work. And very specifically talking about archival work as memory work, so putting archival work in a larger continuum of other kinds of, of processes that seek to document and activate the past.
2: Mm, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I first of all I just want to say I am so glad that you're in this field. Um, that you. was what I thought. Yeah, you know, when I was reading. Um, and yeah, it is incredible how yeah only 15 years ago, uh, it was the white supremacist ideas that were dominating, and all uh, the ideas that push back were really in the margins. And you know we are still in the obviously in the process of change, and obviously we do want to challenge uh, this idea of like progress um, but I am really happy that you know your book is out because I do see this as like a tangible step to change and I think it really nicely ties into my next question which is uh, that you know I love the interdisciplinary aspect of your book and um you know you uh, call archival studies uh, for call out archival studies for being on fire, as you put it, and you bring feminist, queer, and critical race studies um, together to propose a radical rethinking. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about you know, how you formulated this method?
1: Yes. Yeah, it's a really good question. So you know, the roots of dominant Western archival studies um, are in the fields of history and library and information studies, and particularly library and information studies until relatively recently, really saw itself as a science, right? So you hear library science departments. At UCLA, we're very consciously a library and information studies program um, in order to acknowledge the, the interdisciplinary and humanistic ways um, that, that we can view the work of information professionals. Um, but um, so the, this science, this idea that um, archival work and archival theory and practice are neutral, objective sciences. Um, is is so deeply rooted in the um, in the profession and in ways of thinking about the work that archivists do, and that that has there has been significant pushback against that. Thankfully, in the field, I would say, ever since the nineteen seventies, when Howard Zinn, the the radical historian, gave a talk at the Society of American Archivists annual meeting. And basically chastised all of the archivists in attendance and said, what are you doing? You're only collecting records documenting the dominant groups in society and you need to do a better job. Um, and so that idea of archival studies or archival science, right, even the terminology we use is really telling, um, has been uh, you know, gradually chipped away at, thankfully. Um, but for me, I've been trained in the humanities and I do lots of reading in the humanities and... Um, I it's only natural to me, right, to put archival studies into conversation with gender studies and critical race theory um, and philosophy and religion, because that's the way that I see the world, right? And it's it's been kind of shocking as someone studying archival studies that not much of that conversation has been happening for decades before me, right? So when I was in my Masters of Library and Information Studies program, we were taught how to practice and we were taught theories about what is a value and what is not a value and theories about preservation. But we were never taught that the theories that we were learning were rooted in white supremacy and heteropatriarchy. And we were not taught to question those theories and not taught to think about other ways of thinking about archives, non-dominant communities, ways of preserving memory. Um, and for me, as someone who's always done humanistic reading, it was really quite surprising to, to see that there had not been much pushback yet at that point in time in the field. Although again, that, that is changing. Um, and I, there's a just a magnificent group of archival study scholars and archivists who are doing that work now, which is exciting, right? And then at the same time, as someone who has done lots of work in the humanities or lots of reading in the humanities, I felt this deep sense of frustration with humanities scholars talking about the archive as if it were some abstract, non-tangible, non-material thing without in any way acknowledging the labor of actual archivists and without being in conversation at all with dominant Western archival theory and practice. And To me, that was also really upsetting, right? Because um, archivists have a body of theory and we have a tradition, an intellectual tradition that goes back centuries. And it's really important, I think, for humanity scholars to acknowledge that and also to respect the intellectual labor and physical labor of archivists. Um, and that's also really important to me as well, right? So rather than thinking about the archive as some vague possibility of everything that could ever be said or the entire corpus of texts that exist, I really want humanities scholars to think about archives as collections of records, <laughs> right? At their very basic, uh, that's what archives are, they're collections of records. And in order for something to be an archive, usually, at least in the dominant Western archival tradition, we think there has to be at least two things in place, and that is some sense of preservation over time. So there's a reason why archivists really bristle when people say their Instagram feed or their Facebook feed is an archive um which i think was made all the more apparent the other day when facebook and instagram were down for a few hours which is that there's no commitment to preserving those materials over the long term right the materials will be preserved as long as it's profitable to a corporation not not for as long as the creators or the users think that the materials are of value so the first component of this is preservation The second is some kind of description of the materials, right? So archivists create finding aids, which are descriptions of what's in collections within archives so that users don't have to go through every single folder and every single box to know what's in a collection, right? That there is some kind of sense, description, distilling down of what's in the collection in order to provide an access point to the collection. So archival preservation, archival description, which leads to access. I think those are really two key things that we need to think about when we think about what is an archives and what is not an archives. And I'll make a special note here that I always say archives in the plural when I'm talking about actual archives, as opposed to the archive in square, in scare quotes, um, which is what a lot of humanities scholars are, you know, refer to. Um, I think we have very different things in mind. I think that, Um, That confusion is made worse by digital records, because I think, at least before, I think there's a greater awareness now among humanities scholars about digital records. But 10, 15 years ago, humanities scholars were talking about digital records like they were immaterial and that they were magical and that they existed in some, you know, I don't know, otherworldly state state when I think, you know, archivists have always known that digital files are material. They always depend on hardware and software. Um, they depend on internet cables that that run under the ocean, right? So archivists have always been aware of these very kinds of material nuts and bolts dilemmas because they, they present dilemmas to us as archivists, in terms of how are we going to preserve these things? <laughs> um, and archivists are always, I think, thinking about, about that kind of materiality. Um, so I think there needs to be much more conversation between archival study scholars, practicing archivists, and humanities Mm. scholars, absolutely.
2: Mm. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah, because I was trained in humanities, and even though uh, I was trained in humanities, mostly history, so, uh, you you know, we talked about archives a lot, but, uh, you know, when I was reading your book, I was thinking about this too, how we never really talked about its materiality. So I think everything that you said really resonated, and also how, you know, digital is seen as this, like, new space that is often very romanticized you know without mm-hmm. like thinking about its continuity with the uh, you know like the material and then also like the nature of you know like it's like Oh, seemingly permanent but actually very like temporary aspect in the structure of you know like the surveillance and profit by the corporation so yeah. you know all these like power that is not really fully analyzed on unless we acknowledge it's like materiality and the labor of the archivist yes. um, is um, yeah really important point and um, I'm also thinking of how you know when you Uh, complicate our definition of community archives uh, as well by, um, you know, really complicating the role of neoliberal universities, because I think now we often see, you know, the universities always emphasizing, oh, you know, we care about, like, diversity and diverse voices. Um, so I also really appreciated uh, how you pointed out that, uh, you know, like, we need to, like, think more deeply about community archives. And I was wondering whether you can define
1: community archives for us. Sure. It's a really, really good question and an important question. So first, I think community archives have always existed, right? As long as there are groups of people who get together and share stories about the past, that is a community archive in its most basic form. And so that has always happened, whether or not those spaces were called that or not. Um, But within the archival studies literature, it's really only in like 2008, 2009, that community archives becomes a term. Um, And it emerges out of really important work that was done in, in the United Kingdom by Andrew Flynn and a group of researchers at University College London, who really first named this phenomenon of community archives. And they posit a very basic kind of definition of what a community archive is. And they say a community archive, a community is any group of people who get together and call themselves a community. And a community archive is any attempt to document the history of their commonality. And then they further delineate sort of the most important part of community archives is that communities are documenting this history on their own terms. And they bold and italicize on their own terms because I think that is the most important aspect of a community archive is a sense of autonomy, right? That um, communities have autonomy in deciding what is important to preserve about their past and what stories are important to share with younger generations. Um, So that's sort of the initial definition within the archival studies space. But I think from the vantage point of 2021 and from the vantage point of the United States, I think we need to be way more specific when we're talking about community archives. I think we really need to talk about power, right? So we might say that there are two different kinds of community archives, the first is a community archive that is run by people with power, right? So you might think about a white, predominantly white dominated historical society, right, that might exist to preserve a history of white supremacy and is invested in continuing that legacy of white supremacy in order to maintain property values, for example, right? So, you know, that might be a community archive too, if we're using this very generic language about, um, you know, a community is any group of people who come together and call themselves a community, right? Then also rich white people have a community too. Um, But I think once we get to be more specific with our language what i'm actually interested in is what i call minoritized identity based community archives whether that identity is based on race race ethnicity gender sexuality class political affiliation sometimes geographic location too depending on which geographic location you're talking about if there's an element of disempowerment associated with a particular neighborhood for example but i think what what is What I'm interested in and what the book is about is really about um, communities who have been left out, who have been symbolically annihilated by mainstream archival repositories. And symbolic annihilation is a term that feminist media study scholars in the 1970s came up with to talk about the ways in which women and other minoritized groups were either completely ignored by mainstream media or misrepresented or underrepresented. And I think it's a really good term to talk about how BIPOC communities and queer communities have been left out or misrepresented or underrepresented by archives, by mainstream archives, right? So these communities have a wealth of history. They have a wealth of materials, but they have been left out of dominant collecting practices from universities and from government agencies. And so it's when you go to look for traces of these communities in mainstream archives, you find either very little or you find lots of misrepresentations. So I see minoritized identity-based community archives as a pushback against that, that kind of symbolic annihilation, right? As a way to assert that these communities are have been in existence, in some cases for hundreds of years, um, that they exist, that they will continue to exist, and that they're powerful, right? Um, so for me, it's really important when we talk about community archives to also talk about power and disempowerment. Um, so that's that's my kind of clunky, more preferred term is identity, minoritized identity-based community archives. Um, but I think you know community archives kind of serves as a shorthand for that. But again, I think it's really important that we be precise in our language. And one of the reasons why I think it's important that we be precise is because many universities, as you mentioned in your question, many universities are then claiming that they have community archives. And I don't want to flat out say that that's not possible. Right. I think it, it is possible, right, for a university to enable minoritized communities to have autonomy in collecting their materials It's just very, very rare, right? When there are mechanisms in place like paid advisory boards and the people doing the archival labor are from the community, from the minoritized community that's being documented, then that kind of community archive configuration might be possible. But I think when we're talking about community archives, what we're really talking about are these independent organizations that struggle financially because financial resources for doing archival work are not equitably distributed, right? There are really large, predominantly white universities and museums and other cultural organizations that get all of the funding. (laughs) And small, independent, community-based archives struggle financially, even though the work that they do is so important, right? So there are community archives in Los Angeles that are all volunteer-run that operate on $12,000-a-year annual budgets, and you compare that to an organization like the getty right i don't know what their annual budget is but it's in you know the millions for sure tens of millions hundreds of millions maybe um it it becomes clear the way that um communities that have uh, been left out are um are really doing amazing work with such little resources such little resources um, and that there has not been an equitable distribution of the resources that really provide people the time and labor and materials to do this important work.
0: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and this also reminds me in the beginning when you were um saying that you were also working in like development in like nonprofit because actually That's after graduating from my master's like also worked in development and I think what you were saying really resonated because when I was working in development for a nonprofit, I really realized that you know the money just goes where rich oh, white people want them to go and then you know like part of the nonprofit industrial complex is that they can you know distribute and also direct you know like fund so that you know they can shape society how they want yep. it yeah Absolutely. and get a, <laughs> yeah. a
1: tax write-off for it right yeah
2: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think after realizing that I was like, I don't know if I want to work in nonprofit anymore. But yeah, <laughs> right. yeah,
0: yeah. So I, it's like, yeah. Yeah,
1: I worked in development for the University of Chicago. Right. And, you know, at that point in time, we were launching a capital campaign for $2 billion, which now capital campaigns by universities are five times that amount. But it's really amazing to think about rich white people giving money to a university Getting an enormous tax write-off for doing that, and really just investing in the further um, propagation of of elitism, right? I mean, they're they're investing money in furthering more rich white people to become and perpetuate, uh, you know, their wealth, and then get a tax write-off for doing it. It's very different, I think, than looking at a small you know, one-person, two-person, volunteer-dependent, community-based archive, right? That, that is really um, trying to uh, use the tiny resources that it has to, to question dominant narratives about the past and about the present and the future.
2: Yeah, exactly, and then like have like advisory committees too that are like from their own communities. Yeah. yeah, and I think that um, it also really ties well to my next question, which is about temporalities. Oh, you know, it because you said like present, future, and past. Yes. Um and yeah. Uh, and then you talk about in your book how you know these like minoritized identities based community archives really challenge you know linear progressive time, and you look at four different groups. Uh that, uh, you know, were these like, you know, minoritized identity based, like, you know, community groups uh, Mm who uh, show, you know, cyclical temporalities and how oppressions repeat. Um, So I wondered whether you could tell the audience a little bit about like what you have found. Yeah.
1: So I think it's interesting to think about how my first background in religious studies and world religions has informed this book because it's not something that's always at the forefront of my mind, but certainly comes out in different ways in my work. So, you know, when you study world religions, one of the first things you learn is that there are many different ways of viewing time, right? And that each tradition has a different way of viewing time. And so I've always you know, um, thought about that and always thought how the dominant linear progress narrative that we hear in the U.S. is just one way of viewing time, And then I read the work of Charles Mills, right, who passed away a few weeks ago, who talks about white time, who is a philosopher, just brilliant. I highly recommend listeners read his work, Um, but talks about how this dominant progress narrative of it gets better, things get better over time is really rooted in whiteness. So that was really striking to me. And then I also collect empirical data. So right after the 2016 presidential election, I was doing focus groups at these four community archive sites in Southern California. So places like the Southeast Asia Archive at UC Irvine, Lambda Archive, which is a queer archive in San Diego, and talking to the users of these community archives I was asking questions about what does it mean to see yourself represented in a community archive? I was asking questions about symbolic annihilation, about emotional impact, but time and time again in these conversations, um, it the notion of time kept coming up, right? So people were eager to talk about the presidential election and were palpably terrified about what might happen. And The way that across communities, despite the really important differences between the communities that I did these focus groups at, people kept saying history was repeating itself. And they kept comparing the then new Trump administration to the Nazis or to um, uh, immigration police from the 1920s right so there was this notion across communities that history was repeating itself that oppressions were repeating themselves that we were not in some kind of exceptional American story in which um, things got better and that we were just working to perfect a more perfect union over time um, and that you know uh, more and more rights were being granted to minoritized communities over time. Um, instead, I saw this really, again, people were palpably terrified, right? This really, this fear about history repeating itself, right? That that any progress that has been made can be taken away at any point in time. And the 2016 election was, I think, a big symbol and a wake-up call of that happening, Right. Um, and so then I was also started to read a lot of critical race theory, right? And this is one of the central tenets of critical race theory is that, um, white supremacy is baked into the institutions that govern our society. It's baked in. And the only time that racial progress happens is when it converges with the interests of white people, right? Convergence theory. And so these things kind of all came together in hearing, communities talk about documenting their history and how important it was to document their history as a way of telling current generations and future generations that the community has been through this kind of oppression before so that activists now, activists in the future can get a sense of inspiration about um, what their other, you know, that their community elders have gone through. And also, and most importantly, I think, learn concrete strategies, activist strategies. So what worked and what didn't work, right? So um, there was a a young woman who was uh, part of the community at Lambda Archives who spoke so eloquently about going through the archives and finding materials about police raids on gay bars in the 1960s and linking this to police oppression today and talking about strategies that the LGBTQ plus community used in the 1960s to fight these police raids and how those strategies could be used today to fight police abuse. And it was such an amazing um, interview with her because I think she really crystallized what this potential is, right? There's a huge potential for the materials in archives, all archives, not just community archives, all archives to be activated right now. Right. I think in the dominant Western archival tradition, we are trained to not think about future users because we're told that we, we never know who might use materials and how. And I think we need to rethink that because I think we need to make a case that these materials are important right now. They're important right now to activists and artists and we need to activate them right now in order to learn these important lessons. Um, So, you know, this question of temporality, I did not mean to say in my book at all that, that all of these communities that I've done focus groups at or that I've worked with have the same concept of time because I don't think that's the case, but I do think that all of them question a dominant white progress narrative that asserts that things get better inevitably over time.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I really loved it when you said in the book that, um, you know, because a lot of it, uh, archivist and like, uh, you know, a lot of other scholars, including historians says that, yeah, we need to uh, learn history, we need to look at archives for the future, but then how that always indefinitely delays, you know, the changes uh, so that it has to happen in the present um, so that it's not the sort of that future actually never comes and it's like perpetually delayed.
1: Yes, right. Yeah. It's, a, it's a It's a deferral of responsibility. It's it's an amnesty that white archivists are giving ourselves, right? And saying, oh, someone in the future might use this, so I don't need to think about its political implications right now.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then this actually reminded me of um, the liberals um, in Korea and then how they always talk about the LGBTQ rights as like, oh, you know, like we we're first going to work on like women's issues or so LGBTQ rights, yeah. you know, like that's like for the future like later like and um yeah and then how like that just means that it's never gonna happen it's like a way to yeah postpone it so yeah i really also appreciated that yeah yeah um and i think that um yeah i wanted to also talk about you know south asian american digital archives data um that you uh, co-founded and um yeah, and how by working with them, so you talked about symbolic annihilation um, in the beginning, um, so how uh, the group focused more on the representational and like affective aspect, but then over time realized the importance of activation. Um, so yeah, I wanted to talk more about your work and the realization in the process.
1: Yes, so the South Asian American Digital Archive or SADA I co-founded with Sameep Malik in 2008, and we were both working at the University of Chicago. And Sameep is incredible, a force of nature, just a wonderful human being. And Sameep and I were working on a project together, and he asked me, who is documenting South Asian American history? And I had done an independent study that had done research on that topic, and the answer was no one. No one was systematically documenting South Asian American history. And Sameep said, let's just do it. (laughs) Let's just do it because he is such a force of nature. So we um, incorporated as a nonprofit organization. We um, pitched in $100 each and bought some server space and started the South Asian American Digital Archive. And that organization has just blossomed under Sameep's leadership over the past 13 years. So for the first few years, we were doing it as volunteers. We um, were bringing on board our friends, anyone we knew who had the expertise that we needed. So we needed an expert in um, accounting. And so Sameep had a friend, Jennifer Dolphus Ford, who was our third board member who was getting an MBA in nonprofit management. So we brought her on board. We brought lawyers on board to help us with the nonprofit incorporation paperwork and with copyright issues. We brought South Asian American studies scholars on board to, to provide us with context for the materials we, we were collecting. Um, and it was really only about five or six years in that Sameep was able to dedicate full-time his work to working on SADA. And it was quite an uphill challenge, to be honest, in terms of fundraising for the organization. So back in 2008, when we started, there was very little acknowledgement that our, that community-based archives were legitimate Um, organizations. And people would say to us all the time when we presented about SADA, oh, this isn't a legitimate archive, or oh, I get it, this is just a stepping stone until you give the materials to a legitimate archive. Um, And there was no real notion back then of digital archives as being proper archives, right? So I was taught in my MLIS program that digital archives were an oxymoron. And that if you wanted to preserve something digitally, you had to print it out on paper. And I think archivists have definitely moved beyond that, but I mean, it does raise a really important issue about the preservation of digital material, right? It is very difficult, time consuming, um, resource consuming to preserve things digitally over time. Um, But working on SADA has been incredible. When we first started We didn't know what we would find, and we thought that most of what we would find would be from after 1965, when U.S. immigration law changed to enable more South Asian Americans to come to the United States. But when we started looking, we found all kinds of pre-1965 history, right? So we had heard about Punjabi-Mexican communities in California from the turn of last century to the 1920s. We didn't know when we first started about the gutter party, gutter means revolt or revolution in Urdu, and it was a group of anti-colonial freedom fighters who were organizing all up and down the West Coast of the US and Canada to get the British out of India. Um, We didn't know about that when we first started, right? So that was amazing. We didn't know the first Asian American congressman, Dolop Singh Sound, from the 1950s in Riverside, California. Um, we found all kinds of histories that we did not know about. So for the first 10 years, I would say roughly that's what we did, was find these materials and digitize them and make them accessible online. And it was super exciting work. And we're still in the process of doing that, right? It's not like we have stopped collecting materials related to South Asian American history. But I think after a while, we realized that a lot of the records we were finding We're being created by the most dominant groups within South Asian American communities, right? Because if you think about the nature of records, who who has the power to create records, who has the time, who has the literacy, who preserves their things because they think they're important. And so it became clear that if we continued just in this trajectory, we would be silencing minoritized people within South Asian American communities, right? So- Women, queer people, trans people, um, non-Indians, non-Hindus, non-upper caste people. So Sameep, under Sameep's expert leadership, the organization got funding and is still doing this work to commission fellows. So to pay community members from communities that are minoritized within South Asian American communities to figure out how to collect their own histories. And so that has been an amazing project for us and has really helped us in some cases fill in gaps in the archive and in other cases helped us understand when silences exist in the archive for a reason, right? So some silences are the result of racism, right? And other forms of oppression that an archivist just decided people weren't important enough to collect. But other silences are powerful signs of resistance, right? They're refusals, refusals to be included, refuses to be refusal to be surveilled, and those those silences I think need to be respected. So that's been interesting for us. But also, about four or five years ago, we started thinking about now that we have these materials, how do we want people to use them? Who do we want to use them, and how? And so. This line of thinking was first really instituted by a grant from the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage that Sameep got that enabled us to pay five South Asian-American artists to create new works of art in all genres of art um, inspired by materials in the archive. And that was an incredible project, really eye-opening for us. The work that the artists produced were incredible. I start my book talking about one of the pieces that was produced by Zayn Alam, who's a musician, where we had acquired this silent movie footage, home movie footage from the 1950s of an interracial marriage involving a Sikh man and a white woman in Norman, Oklahoma. And we have full-color, gorgeous silent home movies of this wedding ceremony and Home movies after the wedding ceremony, and Zane Alam created a score for the silent home movies and remixed the footage with contemporary news stories about anti-Sikh violence. And there was an event in Philadelphia several years ago where we where he debuted this piece, and everyone in the audience was so moved, so moved, and so to me that was just an incredible example of the potential for the activation of the archive, right? If we can get artists and activists to use these materials, if we give them the time and the resources and pay them, they can really create incredible new pieces of art and new activist strategies that activate these materials from the past. And so I think that has been a shift for SADA as an organization. Now that we have a significant body of material, which is always growing, and I think will always be growing, how do we make sure that people use them? Another way that this activation is happening is that Sameep just published this incredible book called Our Stories, which is a textbook that's meant for South Asian American teenagers that has, I think, 40 plus authors, South Asian American authors that really provides context to the materials in the archive. Um, um, And that book, it just came out. It's being distributed at school libraries and public libraries across the country. And it's another way for people to have an in into The work of the archives, because even digital archives can be intimidating, right? If you don't know how to use them, if you don't know what you're looking at, if you don't know what the proper context is. So something like this, this, our stories book really helps people be able to use archives and, and to see themselves in history.
2: Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll make sure to include the link to his book when I write like uh, write about this podcast. Um, in order to you know like uh, help the listeners, i uh, find the book too. So it sounds like a really great book, and that, um, I'm personally also excited to read it because um, yeah, I'm like really drawn to archives as well. Um, so because like I do really believe in other uh, potential uh, for uh, you know, like for you to feel as if you know you're recognized and you to come. Connect yourself to the history, but also to the present, um, in order to like activate actions. Also, uh, yeah, thank you, thank you for um, uh, elaborating on it, and also for uh, uh, telling us about the about the book uh, book called Our Stories. Yeah, um, I also wanted to ask you, man. Um, you said that uh, in your call for the liberatory memory work now, um, you know, you don't put recognition and redistribution as a binary. And as you were doing now connecting representation with activation, you know, you also connect them together. Um, I wanted uh, to ask you about, you know, your conceptualization of three main pillars of liberatory memory work, which yep. is chrono autonomy, self-recognition and redistribution.
1: Yes. So this mm. is something that I've, been thinking about, and I can trace my thinking about this, you know, for the first decade of of my writing and thinking about community-based archives is trying to figure out what, if there is a tension, what the relationship is between the importance of self-representation and material redistribution, right? So... It is absolutely important for communities that have been symbolically annihilated to see themselves accurately, robustly represented and to have feelings of what I've called elsewhere representational belonging. That is absolutely important. I would never deny the importance of that. But I think we also can't stop there, right? It's not enough just to say like, look, here are some South Asian Americans that have been active for 100 years that we also, I think, need to think about now that we know this, right, now that we know um, these incredibly rich histories, what are we going to do with it? And how do we use these histories to advocate for social change now? And in particular, thinking about Black and Indigenous communities in the U.S. So in 2016, I was part of a group of memory workers that was brought together by the Nelson Mandela Foundation. Um, I was part of Team USA, which is funny. Um, three of us representing Team USA, it was myself, it was Jarrett Drake, who's now a doctoral student in anthropology at Harvard and is a really well-known black archivist who is brilliant. And Doria Johnson, who has sadly passed away and is um, the book is dedicated to Doria. Um, who was an activist and historian who got the U.S. Congress to apologize for lynching, for the history of lynching. Um, And the three of us were in conversation with other memory workers in post-conflict societies around the world. So people from places like South Africa, Sri Lanka, Rwanda, um, Nepal, and Colombia, Argentina, it was very eye-opening as an American to be included in that conversation because we're not a post-conflict society, right? We're um, a society right in the middle of a conflict that most white Americans don't acknowledge. And it's very different to be in conversations with people from other parts of the world where there was a conflict, the conflict is over, and there was a transition, right? A transition to democracy, um, a power shift. In the U.S., there hasn't been a power shift, right? So um, very, very interesting. Obviously, the biggest connections were between the U.S. and the South Africans, which they've also had a power shift, but one can argue the power didn't shift enough, right? So um, for us, that, that conversation with our peers from around the world was really important for us to think about the stakes of liberatory memory work and what the end goal is. And if we're just talking about the joy of seeing yourself in an archive, that's not shifting power enough. And so the three of us wrote a statement that is available online that's also quoted extensively in the book about liberatory memory work in an American context and how liberatory memory work has to respond To the two foundational sins of the US, right, which is the ongoing genocide and displacement of indigenous people and the enslavement of Africans. And that we need to advocate and use the materials in archives for a shift that enables indigenous people to have their land back and that provides material reparations for black Americans. And I think part of this insistence on materiality and material reparation comes from my previous work was in Cambodia, looking at Khmer Rouge records and how they're activated by survivors um, and victims, family members of the Khmer Rouge, and realizing that what in the Cambodian context they called um, symbolic, collective and symbolic reparations resulted in nothing, (laughs) right? Meant you know a museum display or a, a book of names, which I shouldn't say is nothing. Right, that kind of recognition is important, but it didn't result in any kind of material reparation for victims. It didn't result even in you know psychological therapy, right, for victims. So um, again, it's really really important. Representation is really important, but I think it needs to be coupled with these material reparations, right? If we only document celebratory histories, um, I think we're doing a disservice. And I think our conception of liberation has to include those material shifts as well. And then the third aspect that you mentioned, chrono autonomy, I think relates to This notion of time and creating archival theories and practices that empower, reflect, enable minoritized communities to develop and uh, develop practices, archival practices that reflect their own. um, Really complex notions of time and temporality that don't rely on fixing um, records in order for us to recognize them as records right, to, to um, open up that definition of what is a record, um, such that it's not based on white time.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. Yeah, I Really loved your statement um, about like the liberatory memory work, you know, needing to respond to genocide and enslavement um, in both symbolic and material ways. Uh, I I have taken up a lot of your time, so I wanted to move up to the traditional final question and the uh, MBN. Um, so we usually ask about the next project, but then um, in the book you mentioned the co-founding of a group called Archivists Against History Repeating itself Collective. So. I wanted to ask about, oh, you know, how the collective was going and also about your next project. Yeah.
1: So in terms of my next project, I have to admit I'm tired. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, uh, The <laughs> pandemic uh, really took a lot out of me. I, When the pandemic hit, I had um, my son was five at the time. And my partner is an L.A. County emergency physician. So I, when I look at this book, I, I still can't believe that I managed to write it <laughs> last summer. Um, And so I'm tired, but that said, I've since recently taken on the role as chair of my department at UCLA. And so I'm focusing a lot of energy on that right now. I'm also doing some exciting work with the South Asian American Digital Archive and another community-based archive called the Texas After Violence Project about the emotional impact of having your story told and being heard and being archived. So I don't think that, I think that will be more, will generate articles more than another book. And I think it will take me a while to think about what the next book project is. In terms of archivists against, the Archivists Against History Repeating Itself Collective, I think we've been in a period of trying to figure it out. And um, that's, that's where we are now. There are some really amazing, active members of the collective and I would really like to be able to spend more time and turn my attention towards figuring out what the next moves for the, the collective are. Um, so I would say we're in, we're in a growth phase and in a, in a period of, of trying to figure out what our next moves are.
2: Yeah, but that's still, like, a very exciting time period. And also, I totally agree. I feel like in the pandemic, you know, this, like, capitalist society constantly, you know, demands that we're productive. Uh, But then, yeah, especially for women who have, like, childcare, and then, you know, just like added burdens. Uh, I, I honestly think that it's a, it's a time, you know, to be generous and, you know, to focus on, you know, people around you. Um, so yeah, yeah. But your article projects sound really exciting. And I, I look forward to reading them in the future.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciated it. Yeah, me
2: too. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michelle.